Hello, folks. What a treat we have for you this week and next week. If you've been listening to our podcast long enough, by now you've heard Sean and I disagree on a subject or wrestle with it and go back and forth and try and find out where the truth lies. And while I'm sure that Lewis would have agreed with me in all the things that Sean and I disagree about, I'm even more sure that Lewis loved this sort of disagreement in conversation and intellectual wrestling. The Inklings were famous for it, and it's part of why they even existed. And it's pretty much the whole reason why Lewis was a part of the Oxford Socratic Club as well. What is special about this episode and the next one is that we're looking at two book reviews that Lewis wrote on books written by his close friend, Owen Barfield. And while much of how Lewis thought was influenced by Barfield, they remained forever each other's favorite intellectual sparring partners. So what's fun about these episodes is that you'll not only get to hear from Lewis this time, but you'll actually get to hear from the other side of things for once. In this case, from Barfield's side, as we look at Owen Barfield's thoughts, especially on imagination, metaphor, and myth. Welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where two friends and C.S. Lewis fans explore his lesser-known works. I'm Sean. And I'm Jordan. Join us for Season 3 on Metaphor and Myth, where Lewis's writings on language, imagination, and storytelling will help us come to see, know, and taste reality more deeply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lesser Known Lewis, where we usually discuss the essays and shorter works of C.S. Lewis, but today might feel a little more like Lesser Known Barfield, because in today's episode, we're going to be getting into two essays by Lewis that he wrote on novels by his friend and fellow inkling, Owen Barfield. There is a little bit in these reviews that... Uh, connect to the ideas that we're focusing on in this season on metaphor and myth, and we'll talk about that when we get there to the reviews. But the main reason that I wanted to bring in Barfield at this point in our whole conversation on metaphor and myth is because Owen Barfield was perhaps one of the people who influenced Lewis the most when it comes to these ideas of metaphor and imagination and myth. So we probably aren't going to get too deep into the weeds on Barfield's ideas or his writings, unfortunately, but I do hope that today's episode will serve as uh, an introduction and let us know where we can start digging when it comes to Barfield and his writings and his ideas, but also so that we can see how Barfield's ideas on these things um, both influenced Lewis and sometimes acted as a counterpoint or, or a challenge to Lewis's ideas. So fortunately for us, we have a very perfect guest for this episode today. Uh, I was able to convince Owen Barfield's grandson, who is also named Owen Barfield, to join us for this conversation. So, uh, Owen, welcome to our show. Thank you, Jordan. I appreciate that. And thanks for your warm words of welcome. I noticed that you were referring to a possible future show of uh, lesser known Barfield, <laughs> but I was thinking, you know, almost all of grandfather's work is lesser known. So y y you're specializing in the lesser known. But 
it kind of almost highlights the difference between grandfather and Lewis because, of course, they were great friends, uh, had a, s- similarities and, and crossovers in their lives. And even in the 1970s, um, you know, grandfather's popularity also never rivaling Lewis's. You know, he 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 was well known in in America as well because he was a visiting professor in America. So America was his home, and North, I should say North America because he went to uh, Vancouver, British Columbia, and Toronto as well. So so he oh, was really? giving lectures throughout there. So he he was a known uh, person in his time, but their their paths have uh, diverged quite a lot since then. Well, perhaps we can be part of uh, kickstarting a revival here of Owen Barfield. I know a number of people and, and podcasts and scholars are, are doing that and making efforts towards that. Yeah. And um, I think any little bit we can do would be would yeah. be great. Uh, maybe before I ask you who Owen Barfield was, it would be good to know who Owen Barfield is. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay, sure. So I'm um, the only uh, grandchild of grandfather. So there, there are no other grandchildren. Mm-hmm. And um, I had a fairly sort of normal uh, life, let's say, um, up until I was about 33 years old. And then I had a very strong mystical experience which I just felt was connected mm. to, to grandfather somehow. Grandfather died when I was 28 years old. Uh, so I was quite old when he died. I knew him well. And being the only grandchild, I, I enjoyed visiting him. And we enjoyed our time together. So, so we knew each other well. Um, and I fe- he died when I was 28. And I just felt that this, this experience when I was around about 33 was connected to, to grandfather took me a few years to then sort of explore that, look into it, because grandfather for me was just grandfather. And after three years, I, I was appointed as literary trustee as the then literary trustees started to step down. Grandfather had, he had appointed a four, but by then they were quite elderly. Not much was happening. So one by one, they stood, stood down, and then I was mm. appointed, and then I've, I've taken that over. And ever since... Uh, then, which is around about the year 2007, um, I've been trying to work on behalf of the literary estate of reviving his works, making them more available, particularly bringing out new publications and creating a website and what have you, and just encouraging scholars to, to look in this direction and to take this seriously. And the reason is, is because it's important. This is important work to understand what grandfather is teaching in his philosophy is is significant. I mean, not just for us, not for you. It's not a hobby. It's something that mankind, humanity needs to know. Now, his fellow inklings, Lewis and Tolkien, kind of understood where he was coming from and and picked up on it. And that's what informed their work. And in in part, they were successful because they were applying his philosophy. Um, But his philosophy will become more and more relevant as we go forward, because it's really a philosophy for for the future Hmm. or future looking. Whereas Lewis and Tolkien were people of their time, hmm. they were writing to contemporary audiences, which was Britain in the 1940s and 50s. Now that is still interesting and relevant to a lot of people now, but we've come a long way since Britain in the 1940s and 50s. And so now yeah. it's really the works of grandfather might resonate with a younger, newer audience um, than what they were saying or what they were saying is preparing you for what grandfather's saying so it's like doing your homework before you get to grandfather's philosophy 
So those who are interested in Lewis and Tolkien may, in a way, feel like if they want to take a next step, Barfield might be the, the next step to take. Well, so where to go once you've once you're on top of Lewis and Tolkien, where to go would be Barfield. Mm. And of course, Barfield is foundational to those two. Barfield was printing and publishing and, and giving his philosophy before those two ever did. Yeah, well, maybe would you fill us in a little bit more on who your grandfather was and and what what he did? What were some of the ways some of the sure. important ways that he impacted Lewis and Tolkien? Yeah, so grandfather lived um, till he was 99 years. He didn't want to reach 100. He, he, he had no interest in being 100 and he died at, at the right time, which is November, the appropriate month for death. Mm. Um, when he was 99. So I, th I almost feel he chose this moment of death. In fact, I know he, he did. Uh, my mother was with him. Um, and his life was almost exactly 33 years. And so he lived his life in three parts hmm. of equal length. And that first third, he was a sort of poet author. He very much expected and hoped to be a successful poet author. And he'd had probably about four books published by the time he was in his 30s. He'd certainly written a long novel, and if that novel had been published that would have set, and been successful, that would have set the course of his life. But he couldn't find a publisher for that novel, which is called English People, and it still remains unpublished. Hmm. There's lots of his material which is unpublished, and so there's a lot of work to be done. Anyway, because he didn't have sort of critical acclaim at that stage, and because um, his father needed somebody to join the family legal practice, the law firm, grandfather trained as a 30-year-old, to become a lawyer and then join the family business. So that middle part of his life, he was a lawyer, family man. Um, and then the last third, he was able to sort of take a little bit of early retirement. He retired when he was coming up to 60. And um, that last third, he was a teacher, sage, um, professor, to, particularly in America. He was a visiting professor in America. So he went over and uh, received a couple of honorary degrees um, and sort of was at lect lectureships for a semester at a time if you like, in America, both coasts um, in New England and the Californian coast, but also going up into Canada and British Columbia. Wow. And he was particularly well known in those days as an expert on Coleridge. So there was a kind of okay. connection to academia, so the, the romantic authors, Coleridge, um, this kind of situation. And... I think grandfather always sort of felt the loss of um, having an audience. You know, he was very aware that he, he didn't have an audience. Un unlike his, his very good friend, C.S. Lewis, grandfather was just one month older than C.S. Lewis mm. and they'd met in the first few weeks of their first term at Oxford and they'd been best friends sort of since then. And indeed, C.S. Lewis had appointed grandfather as his literary trustee, his literary executor. So mm. grandfather was a literary executor to C.S. Lewis, along with grandfather's first friend who was Cecil Harwood so everyone knows that grandfather and Lewis were each other's second friends but L grandfather's first friend was Cecil Harwood and more could be said about that but Cecil Harwood was a school friend of grandfather's and was there from that those first few weeks in that first term at Oxford also meeting Lewis also influencing Lewis <laughs> and also best friends with Lewis throughout that period of time so that Lewis appointed them both as his literary trustee. Wow. So we usually ask our guests if they have a lesser known Lewis 
recommendation for our audience to take them into lesser known Lewis works. But I think the place for us today would be to ask uh, for a lesser known Barfield writing, which, as you mentioned, many people don't know Barfield's writings. And so where would where would be the place that we should start if we want to get into your grandfather's works? Sure. Well, grandfather said he always said the same thing. So he never changed his position. Unlike Lewis, who who kind of changed all the way through, had a spectrum of beliefs. Grandfather said since he come, came up and sort of formulated his philosophy as a young man, starting at school, actually, and we can go into that. He never really changed his mind. But what he changed is the way he tried to express it to get across his philosophy. So he used everything he could, poetry, narrative poems, plays, short stories, long stories. Hmm. You know, it's it's all there and novels even. But just for your audience, and, and because you asked the question, I'm going to say the book, which has now got the title Owen Barfield on C.S. Lewis. Now, this hmm. is a collection of essays that grandfather wrote on C.S. Lewis. They tend to be, once Lewis had passed away, people were asking him to speak about his, his friend and because he was a trustee. So he gave a number of lectures and seminars, and somebody collected that. But um, I particularly like the book because when I started, I was struggling to know what is grandfather's what I don't I don't know where to get a hold of this or how to start. And because grandfather explains in those lectures how he differs from Lewis, it's kind of a good way, a good insight into what grandfather was thinking because he's explained this is what hmm. I think, but this is what Lewis thinks, and this is the difference. So kind of it does help you. And I'm really surprised that within C.S. Lewis scholarship, this book Owen Barfield on C.S. Lewis isn't more known and certainly isn't more referred to. Because it, it gives a best insight that there possibly could be by somebody who was a con total contemporary of Lewis. Yeah, that sounds very valuable. I And I haven't heard of it until just now, so I'll have to look that up. Extraordinary. <laughs> yeah. It's also got a very nice cover because I I found the photo of Lewis on the cover. Oh, really? Have a look at it. You'll, you'll not see a picture of Lewis like this. And, you know, it's just a portrait picture, which I came up with. So, you know, it's even got a nice book cover as well. Wow, wonderful. Yeah, it seems that there are a small number of photos of Lewis, at least that I have seen. Um, every time you look for one, it's, it's, the, it's one, it, I've seen them all. I feel like there's not too many pictures of Lewis. Um, so I'll have to look that up just for the well, photo. Well, later, tell me if you've seen this picture. Or okay. Not. You know, it's, you know, it's an, it's a bonus, you know, yeah. not only do you get a great book, but you get a photo of Lewis, if that's what interests you. That's great. I will look that up. Maybe before we move more into uh, topics, do you have like a lesser known fact about your grandfather that many people might not know, even if they've studied him? Well, what comes to mind is um, that he was a stutterer. Hmm. He was a stutterer. Now, um, he, he used stuttering as an excuse for why he hadn't given more public talks and, and things like that. The thing about that, though, is he did give quite a lot of public talks <laughs> and you know, I didn't really notice his stuttering getting in the way. But then again, I was used to it all, all my life. Um, as I, I think he was using that as an excuse um, mm. to, to not do things. But the other thing about stuttering is across time and history, many mystics and sort of quite, quite special people, you know, knowers, if you like, have had some sort of stutter. You know, there has been something there. And grandfather said the stuttering came to him um, during the First World War. I think he was so shocked because, of course, he would have been a young age, 14, very impressionable mm. age, um, fear of the war, the whole of his formative life, you know, from the ages from 14 to 18, then knowing that at 18 you're going to go to the front and possibly be blown up. 
they, these are formative years, make a big impact on a young person, and the stuttering started started then. So what I want to say is that grandfather used the stuttering as an excuse for, for why he wasn't sort of out there in the public domain more. But I don't think it was quite a valid excuse, but I do think there's something behind that stuttering, which which is a revelation if, if you studied it more. Hmm. That's fascinating, actually. Even the, the connection to the mysticism, something I hadn't thought about before or noticed. Um, but it's encouraging for me. I don't have a stutter, but I always feel like public speaking, even doing this podcast is always a little nerve wracking. I feel like sometimes I have a hard time finding the right words that I'm trying to use. And um, yeah. yeah, that's encouraging. Well, why don't we turn to the reviews next? Um, perhaps we'll take the one on Romanticism Comes of Age. That's the name of um, Owen Barfield's book, Romanticism Comes of Age. And Lewis's review on that, I believe, is titled What Gave Me a Drink? I'm not sure if I'm, or who, sorry, I should look this up first. It is Who Gave Me a Drink? And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly because the gave is G-A-F, but I think it's an old, older English spelling, or maybe I have the completely wrong words. Um, but anyways, that's how you'll find it if you want to go look for this review. It's in, both of these reviews are in a published work called Image and Imagination by C.S. Lewis. But uh, I've read the review. It's two or three pages. I haven't read the book. So... Um, Owen, would you be able to tell us what the book Romanticism Comes of Age is about before we get into the review? Yeah, yeah, happy to, thanks. I too have read the review and um, we, we can say a little bit about that, but first let's look at the book. So this title, Romanticism Comes of Age, is a title that grandfather used to describe an idea called anthroposophy. Okay. Now, anthroposophy was brought into the world by a thinker seer called Rudolf Steiner, who was an Austrian German speaker. And anthroposophy was uh, core to, to grandfather's uh, life, if you like. Uh, where it touches on grandfather's life is that grandfather, as I say, started developing his philosophy as a schoolboy. And by the age of sort of 23, 24, had, had sort of formulated quite a lot of his philosophy. But when he had an encounter with Rudolf Steiner, who he met in London, hmm. went to a tour by Rudolf Steiner, he realized that Rudolf Steiner was saying the same things that he himself had discovered, but Steiner was saying them much more so, had been saying them more so, it was much, much more profound and had gone a lot further than him. So he was sort of, he didn't want to repeat what Steiner had already said, but he, he found there was a resonance there. And then from that moment on, he was a founding father of anthroposophy in Great Britain, and that by founding that society in Great Britain, it then uh, dispersed throughout the world because English being a, um, a world language, when anthroposophy was translated into English, then it could go to America, Canada, and kind of start informing mm. a, a wider audience. And Rudolf Steiner knew that to be established in England was an important thing. And that's why he came to England more than any other country that he visited because he, having, having a sort of a vision of the future, he knew that, English would be a world language and that he had to have his ideas communicated in English if they were to be developed worldwide. And that process is still going on. This is the hundredth year of that society being founded oh. in Great Britain. This this is the centenary year of, of that. 
and obviously the centenary year of grandfather having been a founding member of that society. And not only having founded it, he was then on the committee for about 47 years or something. So for 47 years, he was a committee member. And you know, he heard, helped write the articles of association, formulate the, the uh, leadership of that society. So that whole anthroposophic impulse um, lived with grandfather. Getting back to the book, the title of the book refers to anthroposophy, romanticism. So it, it's saying okay. that that idea of romanticism, the romantic um, authors and romanticism, which started in the 17th century, um, that all grew and its natural culmination is in anthroposophy today. Mm. So if you were minded to follow that connection, then anthroposophy is the natural place it would take you, which is why it's come of age, i.e. it's grown up. Romanticism, having grown up, becomes anthroposophy. And all the essays in that book were written for that community. So they were all addressed to the anthroposophic community. And that book was dedicated to the anthroposophic community. So therefore, C.S. Lewis, who wasn't an anthroposophist, and again, more can be said about that, it wasn't really, you know, he's reviewing a book that's not really for him. He's not going to be sort of warm, warm to it. But it's a great book because it really explains anthroposophy. But then you have to sort of, have an interest in anthroposophy to take that and if if sometimes people pick it up thinking it explains romanticism i.e coleridge and what have you but it, it doesn't mm-hmm. explain that because that's not its purpose grandfather wrote separately about coleridge yeah well maybe we can get into a few i found a few of the things in that review um noteworthy at least for the little bit again i haven't read the book i don't understand necessarily the depth of the topic um, but there are a few things that just kind of caught my attention and, and, um, we can bring them up and, um, well, actually maybe before I do, cause we noted there, there are small reviews. Uh, Lewis in this case, wasn't necessarily the intended audience for this book. Um, so it's kind of interesting that he wrote a review for it. Um, how did you feel about this review? Well, I, I felt it was sort of helpful. It's, it's nice to have Lewis write about anything. <laughs> it, well, sure. yeah, anybody wants their book to read. And it, at least he didn't say too much that was negative about the book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, Grandfather never understood Lewis's kind of reticent for, for, for reading Steiner because he said mm. Lewis is a man who was interested in in these subjects, you know, he, he was interested in it and he would read anything. And you could ask him about some minor 17th century author and he wouldn't express an opinion until he'd read almost everything that author had written. Mm-hmm. And yet with Steiner, he was expressing opinions without ever writing, reading anything that Steiner had written. So grandfather said it was a massive blind spot when it comes to C.S. Lewis. And I, I, I really do feel that it's because of the times. He just He just was not ready to go there. And we're talking mm-hmm. about Britain in the 1940s, you know, the country, Lewis himself, the environment that he was in, it was just not appropriate to speak about these things. Hmm. He just couldn't go there. And he'd already, see, Lewis's journey had already been quite a big journey. He'd gone from being an atheist through to a theist, through to an Anglican, through, through to being a promoter of Anglican. He was sort of an unknown character. He was a known person. He had a sort mm-hmm. of profile. Mm-hmm. So you just sort of say, I'm going to stop here, here and no more, thank you very much. But that's appropriate for him and his times, but it's not really appropriate for us now. Now we need to catch up. We need to grow up. That's interesting. I did. I do find that surprising about Lewis that that he did 
disregard Steiner, um, though he hadn't done his homework, as it were. Um, because like you said, that is a very, there's not a very Lewisian way to uh, approach um, yeah. argumentation even. Grandfather couldn't understand it and his source of frustration, but grandfather valued his friendship because he didn't have many friends that mm. were up to his own standard who he could converse with. So grandfather and Lewis could have great conversations mm -hmm. you know, on literature. They'd read the same books. They, you know, they were at the same speed. So, so grandfather valued that. Of course, grandfather was uh, the lawyer for Lewis as well. So they, they did actually meet um, to attend to Lewis's legal affairs. Mm -hmm. But grandfather said, even as Lewis's lawyer, it's not satisfying because Lewis will not focus on the subject, which is the legal matter. And Lewis was not interested in practicalities hmm. or detail or things. He liked the big ideas, kind of the, the philosophy, if you like. So very, very quickly, their conversations always lapsed into the kind of things that both men like talking about, which is the big picture. Sure. And I mean, the big picture when I'm saying that. I mean, yeah. What lies behind what we're everything. What we're yeah, that is interesting. I, I it actually there's a line in this review that uh, stood out to me because uh, Lewis has this metaphor that he writes about in Meditation in a Toolshed, where there's two ways of looking um, at things and thinking about things. One is you can look at the thing, and the other is you can look along the thing, and it's you know. I guess two ways of saying you could you could study something, but you could also experience it and kind of get into that mindset. And Lewis is a proponent of saying that we should be trying to do both um, on any given subject. And here he writes, uh, it is easy and fatal to be so preoccupied with proving or disproving a thought that one never actually thinks it at all. And I think commends, if I have this right, commends your grandfather in this book for helping the reader um, see through the spectacles um, that uh, either of romanticism or, or anthroposophy, I'm not sure which he has in mind here, but the idea is that it's written well enough that by reading this book, he, he writes, no one will read without feeling that windows have been opened and that strange airs are stirring in the room. And so it sounds like he's commending the book, at least because it, um, it affects you. And it's impossible to read the book, um, maybe objectively, merely by just looking at it and, and thinking about it at arm's length. But you'll actually feel as though you're looking along the idea, you're experiencing the idea, you're seeing through those eyes, um, which is something that Lewis is, again, a proponent of. But uh, back to your point that he much to your father, your grandfather's frustration, never did that with Steiner. And um, yeah, for whatever reason, it's, a, it's an interesting thing about Lewis. Yeah, it is. And yet, and yet Lewis learns to look through the light, I think, from grandfather, what grandfather is bringing him. Hmm. Grandfather wrote a very important essay called Light of the World, Light of the World. Hmm. And we're not going to discuss that, but... Um, this idea of the spiritual quality of light and at least having an, an aware, first of all, an awareness of it and then an mm -hmm. appreciation of it is extremely important. And I think Lewis would have got that from grandfather. Yeah. You know, there's lots of practical things that Lewis got from grandfather as well. Gra uh, Lewis uh, learned to dive. Grandfather taught him how to dive really? um, when, they were, when they were young men living in Oxfordshire because grandfather had a house. He married young. He, grandfather married when he was 23. So 
he had kind of a home with his wife and Lewis would go and visit them as a young man. Hmm. And there was a river near that house that was in the village of Long Crendon near Oxford. And, and they'd dive into that river and Lewis taught, uh, grandfather taught Lewis to dive. And then that kind of sense of letting go and diving in later, many years later, Grand, um, Lewis sort of described it as a parallel to his conversion process, that yeah. kind of diving in and letting go, just having confidence. So, you know, both physically, you know, the actual physicality of diving into water, but also kind of metaphorically, you know, what diving in really mm-hmm. entails. You know, Lewis learned from grandfather. Yeah, I've from the little I understand uh, about your grandfather's ideas on language and imagination, I know metaphor was important to him. And that, um, from what I understand, he saw the idea and the yeah i'm already out of my depth trying to explain it but that in this case say i diving um the idea of diving and the language of it in a metaphor those two things are more of a a unity than just two random things assigned to one another uh at least in some cases i think um okay so so you're bringing up the word metaphor so mm-hmm. grandfather's great theme, if you like, is the evolution of consciousness. That's the okay. theme that he was interested in, evolution mm-hmm. of consciousness. And how he found evidence for that was in language. So um, his first, his second published books is called History in English Words. Quite often overlooked because it was published in about 1925, very early book. But History in English Words is one of the best places where you can see his philosophy laid out as i say he, he was consistent with his philosophy and it's such an early publication um very rarely referred to but a very easy book to read because it's it's it's, a, it's about words and history but what grandfather is saying there is people think metaphors have come come to us that the, the, the poets and the, and kind of later people have dreamt up a metaphor because they think it's a poetic instrument but grandfather's saying, no, those, met- those things that we now call metaphor were actually in the past, if you study language and really truly understand it, they weren't metaphors. Hmm. They were real. Hmm. It's how people from the past genuinely experienced that. Hmm. And the greatest example is this, win- this word pneuma, the Greek word pneuma, sure. which in one passage of the Bible is translated as breath, spirit and wind so it's got three english words to translate it but it's the same word mm-hmm. pneuma for three different meanings and grandfather's saying that's not just a mistake that's not just you know a different usage that's because back then it was perceived with the consciousness of that those days mm. as being the same thing people could experience the spirit much more easily they had an open access to the spiritual world so he's saying that the consciousness of humanity was different then to how it is now, to how it was at the time of the incarnation, to how it will be in the future. You know, And you can trace that through the evolution of consciousness. Hmm. So one of the biggest uh, teachings of Grandfather is that humanity's evolution has, uh, consciousness has evolved. That doesn't seem to be such a big statement to make. But even now, it's a huge statement. People can't take that on board. The mainstream now think that the people now are like the people back then. Hmm. That the the 
general assumption by most people, most scientists, most people working, is that we're all the same. We haven't changed. We just got better at doing things. We're just using tools and language, but we haven't changed. Grandfather's saying, no, we're not. First of all, we're spiritual beings, and the spiritual within us has changed, has evolved. It's that consciousness, which is our spiritual dimension, has changed, and, and our relationship to the spiritual world has changed. So this is Grandfather's great teaching. And he coined the phrase for it because he didn't have the words to explain this. So he said, original participation is how humanity experienced the spiritual world in prehistory. Final participation is how humanity will experience it in a future history. Hmm. And we're now in a state of participation, which needs to be understood and, and, and experienced and, and worked through. And that's what his, his work was all about. Hmm. Yeah, that is very interesting, just as a concept. Um, and, and for me, anyway, uh, provides a direction of things that I want to think about more, because I think there's at least some overlap there between things that I've found in my theological studies on participation and, and what it means to see the world through a sacramental lens. Um, I'm not sure they're the exact same, but I think it's um, I think it's similar, and and would be helpful probably to read some of your grandfather's things to think um, towards that direction more helpfully. One uh, quote I wanted to read in this review before maybe we move on from it is a quote that Lewis put in from the book. So this is um, Barfield's words, but it has to do with what you were saying about. Um, the, the way people used to use metaphors in their language uh, less as a way of being poetical, but it was, I think he says it's a, a bedrock element in their language, this way of them seeing the world. So here's the quote. Uh, Barfield writes, The Greek youth of Homer's day, as he approached manhood, did not have a beard. He did not even grow a beard. He foamed. It cannot be too often insisted that this was not a poetical metaphor, but a bedrock element in the Greek language. It is we, when we use such expressions today, who are trying to get back, via poetic metaphor, into the kind of consciousness which the Greek had and could express quite naturally and straightforwardly. And I think that's the thing, um, From the, if I've understood the review correctly, I think that's the thing that your grandfather said that romanticism tried to capture, recapture that um, way of thinking, way of consciousness, but, but maybe failed. Um, and perhaps he wanted to continue and return to and, and move back towards. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so in that quote that you just read, there's a kind of foaming of the beard, mm -hmm. which is quite a, a visual, but that, yeah. that's how they would experience it. He, it, it also, the quote touches on blossoming. Right. So we now think, oh, that's quite a poetic language. That's quite a poetic, it, but it wasn't poetic to them. They genuinely felt the same quality mm -hmm. in a plant blossoming as a human blossoming. They could see the same spiritual impulse that was behind those two so they're mm. not looking just at the physical material world and saying mm -hmm. oh he's growing old oh, he's like entering puberty it's such an ugly way of looking at it if mm. you then could actually dismiss that but look at the qualities behind it and see that flower that person is 
blossoming. What a what a beautiful. Now we think, oh, that's a romantic language. That's a that's you know, a thing of kind of poets. But no, it, the whole of society saw the world that way because the whole of society was connected to the spiritual world, and it was self evident for them. It didn't need to be explained. So they used those words because those are the words that naturally came to them. Yeah. They weren't metaphors. It was what they could see happening. Mm. And that's the evidence that grandfather was laying out. You have to remember that grandfather was a lawyer. He was a trained lawyer and a good lawyer. So he's always arguing a case. He was looking for the evidence. And here, unlike the other Inklings, he was laying down a legal case. He's saying, this is the evidence for it. Mm-hmm. And if you can read it like that, then you, you, you see the case that he's building. But you have to be open to the case because what he's saying is not that far off, but it's a shift. And you have to shift your whole worldview to actually go, oh, my goodness, (laughs) it's such a big picture. It's so interesting. And Tolkien saw it. Hmm. You know, Tolkien saw it. And he said time and time again, he had to stop what he was about to say, reconsider, because he's taken on board what grandfather taught him. Say, I've got to present it in this other way hmm. because it's always the bigger picture behind it. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, I wonder because for to understand metaphors, to capture or to um, to perceive the metaphors, that's where you need imagination. And I wonder if this is one of the the areas where your grandfather and Lewis had a lot of overlap, but also had a lot of differences. Um, I think one maybe would have been in their worldviews of, uh, well, Lewis's eventual Christian worldview and your grandfather's anthroposophical worldview. There's a lot of overlap. And um, I think your grandfather saw quite a bit of overlap and maybe Lewis would have saw more differences. But in this area of imagination, um, in the review, Lewis says that romantics claimed the imagination as the organ of truth. And I know from actually just the, the essay that we just read um, before this one, which um, you will not have read necessarily, but it's called Blue Spells and Philanthropies. Lewis says there that, the, the, that he thinks reason is the organ of truth. So whereas here he's saying romantics saw the organ of truth being the imagination, Lewis thinks that reason is the organ of truth and imagination is the organ of meaning. And so he, he says they both are required and we need both a reason and imagination and he really is arguing for uh, a recovery of imagination but saying that it's not the organ of truth but of meaning um, i wonder if and i don't know that necessarily you would know this off the top of your head but i wonder if that's one of those places where lewis and your grandfather differed yeah so absolutely and and you put your finger on the key the key subject matter and, and to everybody listening I should say, first of all, thank you for listening. I appreciate you <laughs> being there and listening to this recording. But this is the area, this is the area that not just Jordan and I want to know more about, but everybody wants to know about. And, and there's a huge capacity and work to be done to understand this because people have sort of brushed it over. Hmm. So um, if I could just say imagination to grandfather was key. Hmm. And grandfather would say that he gave imagination more value than Lewis. So... Hmm. Grandfather explains uh, in this book, I mean, Barford on C.S. Lewis, that for Lewis, imagination was a tool, if you like, a tool that he loved using, a tool that could be, it was there to be used, but it was just an outside tool. For Grandfather, imagination is sort of within us. It was a, a, a soul quality. It was, it was part of our divine makeup. 
the fact that we've got evaluation was evidence that we are divine people. Hmm. So a grandfather's imagination was inside of us as divine um, participation. Uh, for for Lewis, it it wasn't. It, you know, the divine doesn't manifest itself in that way to humanity, but for grandfather, it did. Hmm. And then I would say, you know, where do you stand on this debate? You know, and people aren't given the option to to pick to pick a view. But if if it was laid out clearly by somebody who could express it better than I could, I think more people would take grandfather's position, huh. than Lewis's position. But that remains to be seen. But let's let's have a vote on it. You know, but that, all that needs to be arranged. Now, I'm, I'm talking about this soul quality of imagination. And it's not just by itself. It does, it's not unisolated. It's within a context. So there's three words. Um, the first one is sort of intuition, um, inspiration, and then imagination. So these are okay. soul qualities that build up. And intuition is something that we kind of, we all have a sort of sense sense of. I mean, some people say, oh, I've got no imagination. I can't think of anything. But most people have got an intuition. They've got a sort of basic level of, of understanding about something. So more people want to be intuitive and say they're intuitive than are imaginative. So let's start with intuition. And intuition is inside of us. It, it comes from inside of us and we intuit something. It comes from inside and wells up and we, we get a, a sensation about something. Then you have inspiration. So inspiration is another good word. It literally means the spirit coming into us, hmm. but it's got this vision of something being received by us, it comes coming into us and gives us an inspiration from the outside. And then we have imagination, which is again another faculty within us, growing within us and giving us an idea. Okay. So given that they're soul qualities, you start to build up a rhythm here, something from within us, coming out of it, in, into us, then out of us. And that reminds you of the breathing and all the rhythms, right. the rhythms of the day, the rhythms of the seasons, but particularly of breathing, this in, out, in, out, in, out process. And, and, and so it goes on. Every, everything builds on that. But if you start thinking in these terms, it's not just imagination by itself, let's talk about that, because that is quite a dry, dull thing to talk about. <laughs> we start talking about soul qualities, getting to know your soul, getting to know who you are, you know, meaning it lies at the bottom is foundational to all these things. And both these two authors cared about meaning, which is why they were talking about imagination. But grandfather was given a much bigger picture, you know, he's saying it's just one aspect, maybe the most important aspect, you know, it's a step in stone. And then it's and then this process starts all over again, because I gave it in one way, but you could start it the other way. You could start it with imagination being the basic thing. And then you've got inspiration. Then you have intuition. You know, it, And then from intuition, that's the highest level. So not only do you watch this pattern, you flick the pattern around because in the spiritual world, things are reflected. So it depends on where you are in the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So it's understanding how the spiritual world works and the dynamics of it. And then you could say intuition is the highest spiritual quality and then from there you can have divine insight hmm. so what what we're gain, gaining is divine insight and then grandfather would say these are pathways towards divine insight and we can train ourselves and have an experience of divine insight in the future humanity will do that as a course which will be final participation and we right now are on our course towards that but bear in mind that we are right at the bottom of this trough so from original participation up here, mm -hmm. humanity is sunk, sunk, sunk away from the divine. There was a turning point in time, which was the incarnation of Christ. 
and what now we're going back up but we're only 2000 years away from that incarnation of christ so we're right at the bottom of the trough we've still got a long way to go up before we regain that final participation quality of the humanity lost when it moved away and dropped out of original participation and 2000 years is not long i mean grandfather lived almost 100 years 99 years yeah that's 20 of grandfather's lifetimes 20 hmm. lifetimes since christ was with us hmm. incarnated and the the point of christ which is the divine incarnated is christ turned around the spiritual world he turned around our relationship with the divine from being in and out so the divine was outside of us and we ha we had a relationship with the christ but the christ was out there and the humanity had to relate to the christ so the christ becoming within us christ is now in us and our relationship is finding the christ within us which is why saint paul is always you know quoted about christ within not i but christ you know, mm -hmm. not i but i something we, you know whatever the quotes are but um it's just this change in dynamic change in relationship that happened then which is not that long ago and we've got to pursue that relationship of the divine within us to see where it takes us. Did, um, yeah, did Lewis, do you know what Lewis's take on those things were? Or, because I, again, I see like tons of overlap with um, Christian theology. Uh, I wonder, and I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure I'm understanding uh, your grandfather's thought correctly, or if I'm bringing in the right um, aspect of theology, Christian theology here, but um, the, the idea of, uh, like you're saying, I think ascending towards divine, is it inspiration? No, divine insight. Participation. Yeah. We're, we're going towards final participation. Mm -hmm. And when we reach final participation, we will have a relationship with the spiritual world around us, which will be quite transparent, it will be quite natural. Mm -hmm. So, for example, we'll, we'll be more easily able to see angels, see elemental beings in nature, because mm -hmm. we were able to do that in the past, particularly in the elemental beings. Yeah, I wondered if, I wondered what the Christian, I think, doctrine of revelation, how that relates to that or fits in with that, um, or if there, how much overlap there is there with the idea of between divine insight, uh, humans having divine insight, and there being divine revelation, if that's a uh, divine insights one way, us us seeing and revelation is us being shown. Um, but again, I don't know. I don't. I I feel like I'm out of my depth here. <laughs> well, it's a difficult subject. Yeah. And the thing is, not many people like talking about it. Mm -hmm. And because it's future focused, mm -hmm. and because it's educative, um, some people don't want you to think about it. They really don't want you. They want to keep you on this plane. They want you to, to stay in the material world. They don't want you to think about the spiritual world. Right. They don't want you to have a relationship with the spiritual world. So you have to counter that. Why, why don't they want you to have a, a relationship with the spiritual world? Who, um, yeah, who would be those people in your mind? Well, I'm saying society in general right, right now. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, I see. Interesting. Well, is there anything else from that uh, from that book or review that you wanted to talk about before we move on? No, but in in that book, grandfather is explaining a lot of these subjects. So it's mm -hmm. the first time that he he describes this U shape, and that and that essay is from the 1930s, so very early mm -hmm. works um, mm -hmm. explaining this kind of material. But there is a kind of assumption in that his readership 
already has a little bit of an understanding of anthroposophy. Now, you don't need to have an understanding of anthroposophy because grandfather was writing for, for every man and he wanted an every man um, audience, if you like. But it's it's a lot of these kind of ideas are in that book. So if anybody's interested in, in that specifically, then that's a good book to go to. But it's, it's mm-hmm. not, an, not, a, not an easy read. Grandfather's sure. book where he laid out his philosophy in the most... Uh, approachable uh, mainstream way is a book called saving the appearances okay saving the appearances and saving the appearances is a term used by aristotle so it's an old philosophical term but really it's about finding meaning so it's about finding going beyond what we can see in the material world and finding the true meaning behind what we're seeing Mm -hmm. so therefore thereby saving the appearances of those things So this was the review that Lewis titled Who Gave Me a Drink on Barfield's book Romanticism Comes of Age. And next week, we'll be doing Lewis's review called G.A.L. Version on Barfield's book This Ever Diverse Pair. And of course, we'll have Owen Barfield back with us to discuss that and more of his grandfather's thoughts and Lewis's thoughts on these things like imagination and how telling stories is a great way to get your philosophy across to people. If you want to find these reviews or Barfield's books or anything on Owen Barfield, check out the links in the description. We've got so much good stuff coming up next week. For now, I'll sign off by saying thanks to Terry and David, our top tier Patreon supporters, for partnering with us in helping make the lesser known works of Lewis and today of Barfield even more well known.